Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I have got a seriously cool treat for us. I've got Mr. Tom Doyle, who is the founder and president, I guess, of uh, Uncharted Ministries, and we'll get into that in a minute. He's also the author of Standing in the Fire and Killing Christians and a book dealing with dreams and visions in the Middle East, and we're going to touch on all of that. But first, Unresolved News, it is up. It is uh, it is a site that deals with uh, seeking the truth behind the headlines. Right now, I've got an article up. You're going to see some more stuff going up daily. If you have any questions, please, please feel free to contact me. I love to hear from you. This podcast, guys, is based on uh, uh, answering life's most difficult questions. So if you have anything you want me to, t- to touch on, let me know. You know, if there's something that's really going on, I need to deal with it. Let's go there. So um, with that, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Teresa. Great to be with you. Well, it's an honor to have you. Let's start. Before we really dig into the meat of what you guys are about and what you guys do, let's start with you personally. How did you come to know the Lord? Well, you know, I I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, it was traditional. It was works-based. And uh, when I was in high school, I was just so dissatisfied with my life. Uh, actually, in high school, I was in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. So dissatisfied. I was a jock. I thought it was cool. And and some people invited me to Young Life. And I went to Young Life. It was the first time I really heard the gospel. And a young man got up and spoke for five or 10 minutes after all the singing and games. And, and I was hooked. I knew that was the truth. And I knew I wanted to investigate more. So March 23rd, 1974 is the day I met Jesus as my Savior. And everything changed after that. Within a couple of years, I was off to Bible College in California, Biola Bible College, and then Dallas Seminary in Dallas. I met Joanne in California. We got married and had six children, three boys and three girls, six children in eight years. Gosh, were we crazy or what? Just, we couldn't stop, man. They just kept coming. And so... Um, that was awesome. And so then I pastored for about 20 years. And after a Bible tour in Israel, our seminary invited some pastors to go on a Bible tour. I just became an Israel and Middle East freak. I, I just could not get enough. I was reading every book I could. I, I, I Gosh, it was 95. I didn't know the difference between a Palestinian and a Jordanian. It was Pre-9-11, it wasn't on our radar here in America. And within six years, we knew that God was calling us to leave the church and go work in the Middle East and, and be missionaries and, and write books because we didn't think people were getting a fair shake in the body of Christ. They weren't hearing what God was doing. They were just hearing what the devil was doing on the news. And we wanted to write about what God was doing. And we were seeing it all around us, Muslims coming to faith, Jews and Israel coming to faith in Christ. And so God launched us. And then we launched our own ministry this year, Uncharted Ministries. Our tagline is reaching the unreached, standing with the persecuted. Where we go, it is uh, high risk. Uh, It is unwavering. 
where we go, the commitment, because every soul matters. Every soul matters. So that's what we do. And we're, we're honored to, to work in the Middle East, to be in the hottest spot on the globe. But something that most people wouldn't even know this, right now, the fastest growing church per capita in the world is in the Middle East. It's in the Middle East where Christians are being killed. Muslims are being killed when they come to faith in Jesus. It is off the charts what's happening, but you never get to hear that. So we're honored to write about it. So that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) What are some of the main misconceptions that most Christians have about the Middle East that are frankly not true? Yeah, I think, and my wife, Joanne, and I, we certainly experienced that when we went there immediately. We, we were there a couple of months after 9-11. As soon as we could get a flight out and go to the Middle East, we were there and working in the Gaza Strip, which Voice of the Martyrs said at that time, right after 9-11, might, might be the most dangerous place in the world for Christians. I mean, it'd be up there at least with Afghanistan and Somalia and Iraq and that, but we found out this, here was a misconception, all Muslims weren't terrorists. Uh, We found that out quickly. Uh, Within the first hour in the Gaza Strip, a a woman came up to me in a full burqa, full hijab, and came up and and actually grabbed my arm. And because it was a big crowd, there's a lot of people in Gaza City, and she said, you're from America, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I am. And she said, I could tell by the color of your eyes. And, and she spoke perfect English. Here she's Palestinian Arab, perfect English. And she said, did you see a couple of months ago when the buildings came down September 11th, when, when all of that terrible stuff happened, did you see the video of the people cheering in Gaza? Did you see that on CNN? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I did. And she said, well, I wasn't cheering. I was crying for those people because they didn't deserve to die. And that was so wrong. And I'm so sorry. And I'm sorry that the people cheered here for your loss. Please forgive us. And she tapped her heart and she turned on her heel and she walked away. And I remember saying, Lord, there's human beings in the Gaza Strip. I mean, they're not all cold-blooded terrorists. This woman was genuinely moved. And that's what we found wherever we went. Is there a problem in Islam with terrorism? Most certainly there is. It's, it's certainly marked our life and we have to be careful. But yet on the other hand, the average Muslim, 60% of them globally practice their faith. They don't even read the Quran. They, don't, they know what the Imam tells them. They don't really know much about Islam. And surprisingly, strikingly, they are open to personal relationship with him more than just about any other group on the planet right now. With that, with that kind of as a backdrop, what led you to start writing books? And what was the first book you wrote? So I wrote a book in 2003. It was called Two Nations Under God, Why You Should Care About Israel. And uh, so I've written eight books now, but we redid uh, Two Nations Under God, and we're getting ready to do it again, redo it. But the second time I redid it, my... Um, Buddy Joel Rosenberg wrote a, a forward to it, and and it's just keeping up with what's happened in Israel, how America has typically backed Israel, been a friend to Israel in this sea of hostility that they exist in in the Middle East. And so that was first. The next book was um, Breakthrough, The Return of Hope. Two Nations Under God was 
uh, think of it as a course, uh, Israel 101, the Jewish people, Israel 101. Breakthrough was uh, Islam 101. Where did it come from? How did it get to the state now? What are the divisions? What are Muslims looking for? What are the breakthroughs? Why are so many coming to faith in Christ? And the phenomenon that we discovered during that writing of that book was this was that Muslims around the world globally were having dreams about Jesus and they were asking questions and they were saying a man in a white robe, he identifies himself as Jesus, comes to me at night, tells me he loves me and, and, and he died for me. What, what, what does this mean? So, so the very first time I heard this, and let me just say this, I did not come out of a background where people talked about dreams and visions. I came out of a very conservative background. We, we thought that was Christian television or something, and they were slightly wacky. I mean, that's kind of what I thought. I don't mean to offend anyone. That, that was just my bias. I'm in a Bible study in Jerusalem, and we're praying, and everybody's introducing themselves first. And Muhammad says his name, and I said, wow, that's a, a, a crazy name for a believer, man. Uh, were you just were you just dying to get out of Islam? Were you just so sick of it and fed up and wanting a personal relationship with God? Is that, is that what it was about? He said, no, exactly the opposite. I'm, I'm Muslim. I thought I was right and everybody else was wrong. And so I was content in my faith. I thought I was on the right path. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, it's simple. Jesus started coming to me at night. He started coming to me in dreams and telling me that he loved me. He's in this white robe. He put his arm around me and we'd go for walks. And I never felt so happy and joyful in my life. And he started talking about his blood covered my sins and I could follow him. And finally, I met some believers. And after a while, I just couldn't stand it. I gave my life to Jesus. And my, my family wanted to kill me. I'm, I'm Palestinian. My family wanted to kill me. The believers came, my family. And, and um, so he said, that's where I am today, man. And that, Teresa, was the first MBB, Muslim background believer I'd ever met, that had truly life-changing dreams, cannot forget them, high-definition dreams about Jesus that he couldn't shake. And then it just—it was like the floodgates opened everywhere we went. We were going into villages where we didn't even think Muslims had even heard Jesus' name, and they were asking us. We're having dreams about this man in a white robe. He tells us he loves us and he died for us on the cross. What does this mean? So think about this for a minute, if you will. We're talking about in Israel, where it happened. We're talking about Jordan, the other land of the Bible. Jesus walked there in the Decapolis. We know this from the gospel. And there are people that do not know who Jesus Christ is. It's just a fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul said, the enemy of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They, they cannot see the truth, the, the light of Christ, the glory of the Father, they can't. But when a dream comes, it shakes them up, and they want to know more. And that's how it happens. How many people do you think, on average, are having these? these yeah, well, w we do know this that about one-third of all Muslim background believers, so they grew up Muslim, that's what an MBB is, one-third of them that come to faith in Christ say that dreams paid, 
played a significant part in in their quest to come to Jesus, to come to the foot of the cross. So one third of them. Here's what we know on numbers. In the last 10 years, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ than in the last 1400 years of Islam. So, so think of that. 10 years compared to 1400 years. So what, why is this? You know, why is this happening? Well, A, it's the timing of God. And B, it's not his will that any should perish. So if 86% of all adult Muslims around the world don't know one believer, we're not doing exactly the greatest job in fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not going to them in mass like we should. And people are crying out to God and asking, God, who are you? And he's sending dreams. And they're following up. And they're finding believers. They're finding Bibles. They're getting on the internet. They are, they're seeking to know Jesus. So uh, I think it's safe to say it's in the millions because of what we know is happening around the, the globe. So here's something that I always want to say, Teresa, and I hope I don't forget when I'm on a program. So when you watch television and you see the news and you see that ticker tape go across, if you watch Fox or CNN and there'll be explosions in Gaza and church burnings in Egypt and 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 people in jail in Pakistan because Muslims say they blaspheme the prophet. Just remember this. Pray for your brothers and sisters there because there's a church. There are Jesus followers. So use that. I mean, we're all sick of politics. Everyone I talk to is sick of politics, but watch the news. And when you do, when that ticker tape goes across, use that as a prayer prompter. That'll help remind you when, because the physical war on the ground, Teresa, is just merely a reflection of the spiritual war in the heavenly. That's, that's why the nations, that's why the nations are raging. So, so when you see bad things happening in Afghanistan or Somalia, just remember there's believers there. They're probably underground and they are living it up for Jesus in some of the worst conditions in the world, most dangerous places to be believers. We need to pray with them. Pray for them and stand with them. You know, I am always reminded, I have always said that everything political has a spiritual root. You have, you also wrote about two different things. You wrote two other books that come to mind. One is called Killing Christians and the other one is Standing in the Fire. Now, I admit I have not read Killing Christians yet and I haven't read the one you wrote on dreams, the Muslims having all the dreams and visions yet. Yet being the keyword, it will be included soon uh but i have read standing in the fire and let me tell you guys that book you want a faith booster that's a faith booster when i wrote that book Teresa, and sent it in and then the publisher likes it loves it accepts it and says let's let's read over it to make sure there's no mistakes have you know go, let's just go back over it and so i did when i read through it from cover to cover and I took my time, it took days, just, just to read it like I would read it if I was picking it up for the first time. I, I read through the book, and every chapter I found myself crying. I found myself crying. And here's the thing. I know those stories. I mean, I, we know those people. I know how they turn out. And But yet, on the other hand, I was just so taken by their love for Jesus, their willingness to die. So here's here's what I say. Persecuted believers have become the new faith of genuine Christianity. They're the new faith of the church. 
They're filled with passion. They're ready to live or die for Jesus. And we in the West can learn from them. And so I had the privilege. I mean, the privilege. Could you share of one writing. of the, Right, right. One Could of you the share? Stories. Yes. Would you share one of the stories for my audience just to kind of give them a taste of what's happening? We, we have a ministry, Uncharted. We have probably um, about 60 national workers that we work with and resource and help get funded in the Middle East. So about 60 of them. So you have Syrians leading Syrians to faith in Christ, Jordanians leading Jordanians, Palestinians, Jews leading Jews, Egyptians. So we have a big, we have a big team out there. And, and there's a man in, in Syria, he's our national leader. His name is Fareed Assad. And Fareed is like the Apostle Paul of Syria today. He's a phenomenal man of God, trust God for big things, and God comes through. Uh, I, I talked to him last year, and he said that he had 30 death threats, 30 new death threats. He was calling me from Syria, and I said, 30? Uh, Farid, are you, I, I mean, are you saying that figuratively, or it, actually there's 30? He goes, oh, no, there's 30. And I said, there is? Uh, how do you know? And he said, because the terrorists uh, wrote them on the front of my house and numbered them. This is how we're going to kill you. Number one. Number two, this is what we're going to do to your wife. Number three, it's what we'll do to your family. I have 30 death threats. And so during this seven-year war, and even though it's not on the front burner on the news, it's still blowing and going in Syria. That's for sure. Fareed got his team together in a basement in Damascus. And he said, we need to pray. We need to take a week and pray with our families and ask the Lord if we're to stay in Syria or if we're supposed to go. I I can't blame you leaving Syria. You have a wife and small children who could raise their kids here. Horrible. It's terrible. We don't know what will happen from one day to the next. So let's take a week and let's fast and let's pray. Let's come back in a week. And if, if you're supposed to stay, Come back to this room in a week. If not, God bless you. God use you in Lebanon or Europe or the States or wherever he takes you. We're not trying to be heroes here. We're just trying to say, who's staying and who's going? And so after a week of praying and fasting, Fareed came back to that basement in Damascus and opened the door. And Teresa, as he's opening the doorknob, he had a thought go through his head. Is anyone even going to be in the room? When I open the door, is it going to be empty? I mean, who would stay here? It's just so dangerous. And he opened the door, and there weren't five of the 10 leaders there. There weren't five. There weren't 10. There were 25. The 10, the 10 had gone out, and they recruited 15 more leaders. And they said, we're here, and we're staying. Jesus is the answer to the problems in Syria, and we're staying. We're going to probably get killed, but we're staying. And so you know what they did to seal it? They went out and pitched money together because they needed a place to bury each other. There's no place for them. They're former Muslims. They can't be buried with their families in a Muslim graveyard. They wouldn't want to be the camp. They're former Alawites, former Druze. There's no place for them. They bought land and they built a graveyard. They have a little mausoleum there in a graveyard. And we are in contact with them almost daily. And they will send out communications. They have to be careful that it's not captured and and the Syrian government can decode it or terrorists. But they'll say things like, 
he's uh, he's moving here. Well, we know Jesus is doing something. We have many new friends. That means there's new believers. Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. Oh, and there's other good news. And the graveyard's still empty. That story really does lead me speechless because I don't think we here in the West have a grasp of what it means to stand for your faith and stand and I mean enough to gather enough money to buy your own graveyard in case you're killed. What kind of faith must that take? It's it's amazing. And you know what he Fareed says, Teresa, he says, it's a remarkable freedom. I have no expectations or plans for tomorrow. None. The only question I ask myself is when I wake up, Jesus, what do you have planned for me today and my family? Only today matters. Only how I live for Jesus counts. Everything else is superficial. I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. Only what is on the list for the day is important. And he says, I have more peace now than I've ever had in my life. And yet his life is under threat. It is. And uh, he's an amazing man of God. He is laughing. He is smiling. He, he says that one of his heroes is Jerome. You know, Jerome that, that penned the Latin Vulgate. Actually, Jerome had chained to his ankle a skull. Jerome found a human skull and got a chain and would chain it to his ankle. And when he would see it, he would say this in his mind, another hour has passed for which I must give an account to Christ. Wow. That's the kind of faith I want. And so they have no problem, Teresa, when a Muslim is ready to pray to receive Jesus. They have no problem asking them the two questions before they pray. So the two questions they ask them before they pray are, that's great. You want to follow Jesus and repent of your sins. That's awesome. But number one, are you willing to suffer for him? Because it's probably going to happen. And it's probably going to be from your own family. They're going to be so angry. They're going to feel so shamed that you defected and lived, left Islam. They're going to try to hurt you. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? And the answer is yes. Okay, now here's the second question. If it really gets bad, are you ready to die for Jesus? Can you imagine those questions in the new members class at your church? Well, that would clear out the class quick, you know? Seriously, you're ready to suffer for Jesus. You're ready to die for Jesus. You, you know what? We were just in Turkey, Teresa, with 25 new believers that are Kurdish believers. They come from Islamic background. And we talked about how many of you, we asked this question, how many of you, before you came to faith in Jesus, had a dream about him? And do you know that all 25 hands went up? All 25. And then after that, we said, since you've come to faith, how many of you are willing to die for Jesus? Every hand immediately shot up. Every hand. And I think about that. We need to ask that in the American church. Could come to that. Jesus said they're going to hate you. Because what? Because they hate me. It's just normal. Expect it. This is, this is the new normal for the church. And we better be ready for it. You know, I keep thinking about, you know, you turn on traditional American Christian television and you get this bubblegum, watered-down so-called gospel, and then you think about these people that are willing to suffer and die for their faith. I, I really believe that that is a call to repentance. I really believe that, that when you hear about something like that, it should drive us to our knees and it should drive us to repentance because that is... <laughs> 
Um, that is so crucial. I mean, that is so crucial. And, and you know, Teresa, I have never, ever heard a persecuted believer, whether it was a North Korean believer or a Syrian or someone from the Gaza Strip or wherever, say, Lord, stop the persecution. I've never heard it. Now, for me, I think in my comfortable American ways that I grew up in, I mean, when I got a trial, the first thing I'm looking for is the escape hatch. When is it over? When, when is this done, Lord? Please. They don't think that way. They pray, Lord, teach us everything we need to know during this time of tribulation. Teach us. And so I think the most important thing that I can say, other than pray for your persecuted believers, is, is your brothers and sisters in Christ, is don't feel sorry for them. Uh, they don't feel sorry for each other. In fact, one man, I, I said, I'm, I'm, it just must be so hard. I'm just praying for you. And he's from the Middle East. And he said, well, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for people in the West. We're fervently praying for you. And I said, well, we got it so easy. And he said, I know. That's why we're praying for you. We don't know if we could be this passionate for Christ if, we, if it was that easy, if we had so many options, if we had so many other things to do. We are here surrounded by Muslims that want to kill us. It's just us and Jesus. So let me ask you this. How much does spiritual warfare play into what we're talking about? Well, it's huge. I mean, you think about you think about where Abraham came from, Ur of the Chaldees, 4,100 years ago. They've done excavations there. Sir Leonard Woolley in 1929 did excavations in Ur of the Chaldees. It would be present Iraq, Iran area. They found all-out pagan worship of the moon god much like what Islam does today, same kind of amulet, same kind of statues that, that are honored today. And so we're talking about deep, entrenched spiritual warfare, generations upon generations that's been there, hasn't left. And so as Christians, we cannot just waltz in there thinking there's going to be no blowback. Satan's going to throw the gate to hell at us. He's going to but they won't stand. Jesus said the church busts right through them and they won't stand. They're like cellophane. They're like, they're like Kleenex, but we do have to armor up. We have to put on Ephesians 6 armor. That is not figurative. That is for today. That's not just because Paul was in jail and there were some Roman soldiers running around and it made a good analogy. You know, <laughs> That's not what it's about. We're in the world. We're sojourners. We're foreigners. We got to put the armor on. And what does that look? And what does that look like to you? For us, we actually pray through the armor. We we start with the helmet of salvation and pray from head to toe, and pray that on. What normally happens is Satan starts to mess with your mind. The battlefield is for the mind. That's if he can if he can get control of your mind, he can get control of you. And so, um, Teresa, I've been sharing with Muslims in a tent or in their home where. It was like my hard drive fried, and I could not think of the verse John 3.16. I couldn't recall it. Um, I couldn't think of anything to share, and all of a sudden, it just hit me through the Spirit of God. We know what's going on here. So we would just pray out loud, Satan, enemies of Christ, we command you to leave us alone in the name of Jesus now. We are covered under his blood. You have no authority over us. Leave now. And the verses flood back into the head. See, this is the the devil is trying to keep us from Muslims. He knows he's not stupid. He knows they've never been more open to the gospel than now. 
So let's do something here. Let's prevent more of them from coming to faith in Jesus. Let's get Christians to be afraid of them. Let's get Christians to hate. Let's get Christians to hate them from what they see on the news and terrorism. And let me tell you, my dad was an FBI agent. He worked on the borders and saw the infiltration of the Muslims. It's, there are problems. There are, terrorism is real and it's emanating out of Islam. But that, that, can, that can paralyze. The news has a paralytic effect on Christians. And also, sometimes we're just, we're just apathetic. So we're afraid of them. We hate them. We don't care. And then we play right into Satan's hands. We stay away, and they are thirsty to know who Jesus is. They, they are, they're, they're searching. They're watching Christians when they come out of church, and they see the smiles, and they see the joy. I'm telling you, that ain't happening when they're coming out of the mosque. It's the same old, same old. They're getting condemned. They're getting criticized. They're, they're, they're being told how terrible they are. They know nothing about the love of God, but they want to. And that's our job. And that's where we come in. So how can we help your ministry? We're on Facebook. We set our watches at 8.38 p.m. or our phone, however you keep time, at 8.38 p.m. every night. And we pray for believers that are in prison, persecution, and danger. And, and 8.38 was chosen. God laid that on my heart in Jerusalem one night because of Romans 8.38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We want our brothers and sisters in harm's way to know we stand with them. We're putting our arm around them. We're praying for them daily. And so we do that every day at 8.38 p.m. If you get on that Facebook page and like it, you get updates every day from the hotspots. We just had one this week on Egypt and what happened with with the nine Christians that are killed. We're going to the same area pretty soon here. So we're we're following that. So number one is pray. Number one is pray. But number two, you actually can do something. You people ask us, this is the most common question we get, Teresa. What can I do? Number one is prayer. Absolutely. But here's the second thing you can do. For the last four years, we have written handwritten letters to the most persecuted Christians in the world. And then the Uncharted team has gotten on a plane, gone and met with those believers and hand-delivered them. So for the last four years, we've done it. In 2016, it was the Egyptian widows. Their husbands got martyred on the beach in Libya by ISIS. The year after that, it was Syrian pastors and underground church planners. We brought them out of Syria into Lebanon delivered over 3,000 letters to them. Last year, it was North Korean defectors that are now believers and live in South Korea and are training for ministry. And then every time, Teresa, we brought them letters, handwritten letters, they cried that there were brothers and sisters around the world that remembered them and even prayed for them. They thought they were carrying this burden by themselves. We met some, some of the the Syrian leaders, and they said, there's people praying for us. They know about what we're going through. Yes, they do. That's why we do 838. This year, we're writing letters to the Nigerian widow. If, if you've heard what's happening there, there's a radical jihadist Muslim group called the Fulani Herdsmen. One weekend in June, they displaced 10,000 people and slaughtered hundreds of Christians. 
took women and young girls, enslaved them, and took off. This is happening routinely. So here's what you can do. You can go to our website. And so our website is Uncharted. So U-N-C-H-A-R-T-E-D Ministries, M-I-N-I-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. UnchartedMinistries.com. And as soon as you get on the front page, you're going to, first of all, see some inspirational stories. We write a new story every month. But at the top, they'll say, it'll say, Orange Letter Campaign. Send a letter of encouragement to widows in Nigeria. Teresa, we called it the Orange Letter Campaign, and that's to honor the Egyptian martyrs that were in the orange jumpsuit when they went to be with Jesus on that beach in Libya. So it's it's the Orange Letter Campaign. We got a link. You can get on. You can plug it in electronically. We're going to print it off, and we're going to hand it to one of those Nigerian widows. And here's the cool thing. We don't even have to translate them this year. They speak English. You should have seen our team trying to translate 3,000 letters into Korean. You know <laughs> That had to be fun. So they speak English. We're going to take them and hand them to them. And believe me, they're still in harm's way. So please go to unchartedministries.com. Take you five minutes to just share a verse, word of encouragement, some love that would build them up, sign your name, and away we go. We'll print them off. And in a couple of months, we're going to hand deliver them to the Nigerian widow. Well, I, you know, as I listen to this, what I hear is both a call to action, but also a a dose of encouragement. I mean, there are real Christians that are really aware, really awake, and really alive for Christ. And to me, that is, you want to, I mean, we have a lot, we deal with a lot of unresolved issues here, but to me, the most unresolved issue is what are you going to do with Jesus? That's right. And what about those that have never heard? I mean, that's, that's our, like I said, our little tagline, extreme, unwavering, high risk, because every soul matters. Jesus always goes after the one. He, he goes mm-hmm. after that one lost sheep. And that's, that's why we're going into the villages that are 100% Muslim. And it's dangerous. Our sons are in the ministry. They got surrounded by the Islamic State in Turkey, right on the border of Syria. And the Lord delivered them. And it's worth it. They go back again because every soul matters. Tom, would you be willing to come back and give us periodic updates as to what you're doing and what's going on over in the Middle East? I really feel like my audience needs to be aware. Sure. Yeah, I would love to. No no problem. I have a kind of a crazy schedule of travel, a couple hundred days a year. But hey, listen, I do things on location, too, uh, because we're just we're mainly out in the Middle East. And so we can do that. If we can work on our time schedule, we we can do it. You know, I brought Tom on because I was reading some of his stuff and to hear some of the things that God is doing. And you talk about visions and dreams and uh, delivering people. And I'm going to be linking to all of his books on the show notes. Or at least, you know, the, the, the three that I mentioned, the, the one about dealing with dreams and visions, the one dealing about killing Christians, because I think that's something we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of those that have paid the ultimate price. And so, um, Tom, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and opening our eyes to what's going on. Teresa, it was an honor. Praise God. My, my joy to be with you. 
You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.